It's a special Snap Judgment Live this week, Snappers, and I am so excited. A sold-out Washington, D.C., Harmon Center for the Arts. But don't worry. We save you the best seat in the house, and it's on. I grew up with my cousin Virgil. And I, I love Virgil. I do. I, lo- I still do. I love Virgil. But what I didn't like was every time we went somewhere, all the little girls would say, Virgil, Virgil. He's so fine. Virgil. And what you might not know, what we called it back in the day, back in Detroit, was light-skinned See, Virgil was light-skinned, and in Detroit, that was very, very good. The thing about Virgil was, you could never get anything in on him. I'm his cousin. I could never, I could never get him. Virgil, you're ugly. Not today. I tried, and I tried, and I would try. And one day, a bunch of us cousins were all sitting around, we're all sitting around, we're watching TV, and a commercial comes on. Light, bright, making things with light. Out of sight, making things with light, bright, light, bright. And right then, the universe, the universe whispered to me, Glenn, use this. Use this now. Use this against your cousin Virgil. Light bright, cause you're looking so white. Kinda tight, but you're really just white. Light bright. Ha ha! Ha ha ha! All my cousins, light bright! Light bright, fool, light bright! I finally got him. I finally did. It was later on that day when my granddaddy told me to go down to the corner store and get him a six pack and some cigarettes. I was eight years old. It was simpler times. <laughs> but I ran top speed, right? Because granddaddy let you keep the change. And I was messing around in the store. And I saw something I had never seen before. In a corner, there was a jar. On the jar was a picture. The picture was this light-skinned brother. Looked kind of Lando Calrissian, Billy D sort of look to him. And on the jar it said, skin lightning cream. What's that? What's that? It said, you can be the complexion you deserve. I deserve. I deserve. I don't remember taking the jar. I don't remember sneaking past the cashier, running top speed to my grandma's house, Creeping through the living room, locking the door of the bathroom. I just remember standing in front of the mirror, wondering if I had the courage to be the complexion I deserve. <laughs> Welcome. The Snap Judge.
And there I was. There I was in the bathroom. In a, the jar read, it said, apply liberally to the affected area. <laughs> so, you know, I went to, went to pick up the jar. You know, chemical smell, chemical smell. I was glad of that. It had a big job to do. It's about to be pretty boy Glen time. No more pretty boy verbs. So, I opened up the jar. It was a bubbling crude. Battery acid, caustic. And uh, so I got my finger, got a big globule. It was burning in my finger, you know. And I had to put it against my, my eight-year-old skin. Boy, what you doing in that bathroom? <laughs> Granny. Um, I'm reading a book. Oh, that's my smart grandbaby reading a book. Smarty smart. I'm looking in the mirror with a chemical scar across my face. Smarty smart. Uh, I'll be there just a minute. The burn. It stung. I couldn't take it anymore. I stuck my head in the faucet and scrubbed for half an hour. When I was done, I went outside. Granny said, what the hell did you do? <laughs> Just fell on some books, Granny. I fell on some books. And that night, I tried to sneak the jar out to the trash. When nobody was looking, I had it wrapped up. You know, hope nobody would find out. But there he was, my cousin Virgil. What you got, nothing? What you got, nothing? I knew if he found out, it was all over for me forever. To all my cousins, he came over to me. I know what's in the bag, man. I know what's in the bag. Light bright. <laughs> Welcome to Snap Judgment. We are so thrilled to have you here today. DC, DC. Can't believe I get to come to DC. My name is Glenn Washington. They call me Glenn Washington, but this here is storytelling with a beat. And there is no beat without a band. Put your hands together, please, for Mr. Alex Mandel and the Snap Judgment Flames. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on, wait, 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 wait. I got a question for you, DC. I got a question for you. Do you like my jacket? Yes, indeed. I got this special for y'all. Now, today's show, we're calling this Dig Deep. I got some of the best storytellers in all the land. I asked them to dig deep and come up with a story that hits the core, hits deep down there. And you will not be disappointed. One of my favorite storytellers in all the world, you know, born, bred right here in the D.C. area, please put your hands together for Mr. Reggie Kabiko. 
first Filipino family to move into Clinton, Maryland. As soon as we arrived into our new home, my mom, a nurse, super Catholic and a hypochondriac, started making the sign of the cross with Lysol. I have two sisters named Faith and Charity. My name is Reggie. There is no hope in the family. While I was growing up, my mom would say to me, Reggie, why do you want to sleep over the neighbor's house there? They will murder you. Psst, Reggie, come on now. Practice your piano lessons. My mom gave me piano lessons because for Filipinos, it was like old-fashioned karaoke. A big hit was Memory from Cats. Reggie, come on now. Play me the cats. Your titos and titas are here to hear me sing the cats. Psst, come on now. Midnight, not a someone is crying. Mm-hmm. I am beautiful, dear. My mom would sing that song off key while everybody applauded with a plate of pancit noodles on their lap, <laughs> sipping Pepsi and hailing her a Filipina Barbara Streisand. Afterwards, she wouldn't sing anything else. She'd just run back into the kitchen, laugh like a smurf, and make more pancit noodles. <laughs> but I, too, wanted to be a performer. I saw the movie Fame, and I imagined myself shenaying past the Silver Queen cornfields of Clinton, Maryland. see myself breakdancing on top of lunch tables and taxi cabs. It was then that I decided I would be a performer and I signed up for every performance opportunity that I could. I signed up for the NAACP Afro-Academic Cultural, Technological, Scientific, Olympics of the Mind Oratory Competition. (laughs) And I won a gold medal presented to me by Kim Fields, Tootie from the Facts of Life. (laughs) Reggie, I know that you will win the NAACP contest because as a nurse in the nursing home, I am helping all the black people. And the black people are praying to God. And God is giving you blessings. So Anna, keep doing it, doing it. Act, act. So I did. And I auditioned for television parts. And I got a call back for America's Most Wanted. (laughs) And I told my mom. And she said, Reggie, that is so good for you. I know that you could be the killer. So she told everyone at church, and they were praying that I would get the killer parts. It was a novena campaign. And finally, I was the killer, and everyone at church came up to my mom, and they said, Mrs. Kabiko, your son was so great on America's Most Wanted. And she said, oh, well, yes, he was always very mean to me and his sisters. 
Well, with all the money I got performing, I bought myself a car. And I auditioned in Washington, D.C., every regional theater part I could get. And I finally got my first acting role. It was a servant with no lines. I'd be coming home late at night, and my mom would be pacing back and forth. Reggie, if you're an actor, I do not want you to do these soap operas because you will lead the people to sin. Reggie, be like Oprah. Reggie, you are my Oprah. I know that you will help me retire and send your two younger sisters to college. My mom dragged me to the other side of the living room. As I walked over, I saw a huge light. And as I got closer, I saw this lighted glass stand with all of my awards. It was like each certificate had its own light bulb. It was like a trophy Christmas tree. Mom, what's this? Reggie, this is your shrine. My mom was not going to let me go. My dream of performing in Times Square was not in this Clinton, Maryland living room. I'm just a servant with no lines. I'm not the patron saint to your immigrant dreams. Mom, I'm not your Oprah. PRX and APR, you're listening to Snap Judgment Live, the Dig Deep special. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Back to Snap Judgment Live from PRX and NPR, the Dig Deep Special. Join us now, already in progress. Now, I have asked all the storytellers tonight to dig deep. Next on the Snap Judgment stage, I am so excited. First time ever on the Snap stage, but he is only 15 years old. Please put your hands together for Mr. Noah St. John. Thank you. 
When my mamas fight, they go on long car rides, come back, and I hear our car stay still. They come in, and Robin goes directly to the bedroom angry. Maria will sometimes make toast, pour water. I sit in my room quiet, listening like a radio antenna. My mamas drive a CRV. They bought it brand new. The car is big-boned practical. It is our car. I have been one with this CRV for so long now. We used to drive for miles out on the highway until I fell asleep. It has taken me to martial arts practice and school plays. This is the car that drove me to the gay pride parade where I skipped through the crowd throwing mini Oreos. This is the car I'll learn to drive in, the car I'll remember. Last Tuesday night, my mother Maria comes into the house with a weathered smile. My other mother, Robin, and I are sitting in the room. Maria asks us if we'll take a drive with her. So we all get in the car, our hearts thudding in offbeat unison. And as we drive, silence settles in. And I wonder, and then I know, this is it. And I didn't imagine it would end like this. I didn't imagine an ending at all, but if they were going to tell me about the divorce, what a way to do it. I sit in the back seat. I wonder when they'll say it, how they'll say it. I think about how my time will be split between them. I wonder what'll happen when they see each other afterwards. Will it feel like collisions? I don't want to meet a new girlfriend. I can't imagine anything but this. Its ending is unthinkable. My heart hurts at the thought of our last miles, these miles. Who will take the CRV? In the back seat, I think about how lucky we were to have had this family. Their 20 years of marriage, my 15 with them. I remember when Maria drove away one night without saying where. I remember when I came to them crying at the idea of separation. I remember when Robin came out sobbing. I remember when Maria whispers at Robin to be quiet and Robin yells louder. I feel these walls crumbling. I don't want this life to end. Maria starts to talk. I pinch my leg and look out the window. She tells me that our car, our CRV, is just 13 miles away from reaching 100,000 miles now. I wonder if this is part of the divorce speech or just a distraction. I feel angry, they should just say it. She tells me the reason we took this ride is so that we could all be there 100,000 miles together as the people who matter in her life. Slowly, I come to the realization that this isn't a breakup ride. This is a stay together ride. We're in the car and we're driving on a Tuesday night and we're 99,987 miles in. We stop for onion rings and Sundays. keep driving. 99,993 miles, Stevie Nicks. 99,996 miles, Elton John. When we get to 99,999 miles, we hold hands. Last month.
Melissa Etheridge and Sin Lucky at the top of our lungs. There are too many reasons that my mamas found love in each other's presence. There are too many moments when we are unbreakable. And in this moment, we are one family, constructing road as we go, burning bridges behind us, adding mileage like graceful aging, driving in our CRV towards moonlight. Not for sure. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, this is just getting started. We just had the youngest person ever on the snap stage, and now we're about to go to the original gangster. Mr. Jack McCarthy is a legend in the performance storytelling circles. I cannot wait for you to hear him. I'm gonna get out of the way, Mr. Jack McCarthy. Thank you for that introduction, Glenn. I don't mind being called original. <laughs> but gangsta might be a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I was just old enough to be out on the sidewalk by myself. And every day I would come home crying, beaten up by the same little girl. I was Jackie, the firstborn, the apple of every eye. Gratuitous meanness bewildered me, and as soon as she'd hit me, I'd bawl like a baby. I knew that boys were not supposed to cry, but they weren't supposed to hit girls either. And I was shocked when my father said, hit her back. <laughs> I thought it was a great idea. But the only thing I remember about that girl today is the look that came over her face after I did hit her back. She didn't cry. Instead, her eyes got narrow and I thought, Jackie, you just made a terrible mistake. And she really beat the crap out of me. It was years before I trusted my father's advice again. I eventually learned to fight, enough to protect myself from girls. But the real issue was the crying, and that hasn't gone away. Oh, I don't cry anymore, I don't sob, I don't make noise. I just have hair-triggered tear ducts, and always at all the wrong things. Tom Baudet saying, we'll leave the light on for you. I always cried at the last scene of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. In movies, I despise 
the easy manipulation that never even bothers to engage my feelings. It just comes straight from my eyes, but there's not a damn thing I can do about it, and I hate myself for it. The surreptitious nose blow, the discreet four minutes after the offending scene. My daughters are onto me, my wife, they all know exactly when to give me that <laughs> quick sidelong glance. What must they think of me? In real life, I don't cry anymore when things hurt. Never a tear at 17 when my mother died, my father. I never cried for my first marriage. But today, I often cry when things turn out well. An unexpected act of simple human decency. New evidence against all odds of how much someone loves me. I think all this is why I never wanted a son. I always supposed my son would be like me, and that when he'd cry, it would bring back every indelible humiliation of my own life. And in some word or gesture, I'd betray what I was feeling, and he'd mistake and think I was ashamed of him. He'd carry that the rest of his life. I know. Daughters, daughters are easy. You can pick them up, you can hug them, you can say, there, there, it's all right. Everything is going to be all right. And for that moment, you really believe that you can make enough of it right. Enough. The unskilled labor of love. And if you cry a little with them for all the inevitable gratuitous meannesses of life, that crying is not to be ashamed of. But for years, my great fear was the moment I might have to deal with the crying son. But I don't have one. We came close once, between Megan and Kathleen. The doctors told us there was something wrong. And when Joan went into labor, they said the baby would be born dead. But he wasn't. Very briefly, before he died, I heard him cry. Snap storytellers come to us from all over the world. Please put your hands together for the beautiful and talented Miss Kate Ascott Evans. My mom is dying, or at least her version of dying. I'm 21, my brother and I are sitting at her deathbed. We're here because for some secret reason, my mother is certain that today, July 27th, she will die. She looks sick. Her face is bloated. She's wearing a torn nightgown. She's struggling to breathe. But the thing is, 
I can't trust how things seem. That's how I cope with the crazy. And it is crazy. Her bedroom is filled with lists. The entire house is covered in lists that she's made of things for us to do once she's died. There's a list on how to defrost the fridge and where to find spare toothpaste. And then a list on how to throw her funeral and where to find a pistachio green coffin. Before she got sick, my mom made lists too. There'd be to-do lists for all of her parent committees. My mom could take care of anything. And that's the mom I want to remember. Another sigh. She breathes out. But this time she doesn't breathe back in. She just stops breathing. My brother and I turn to each other, panicked. What the hell is going on? This isn't supposed to happen. This is all supposed to be a part of her delusion. But, but her chest isn't rising and suddenly nothing about this feels like pretend. And then she inhales. We need a doctor. At the hospital, they treat her for poisoning. Uh, as it turns out, she's been medicating herself for horrific illnesses she doesn't have. I'm, I'm filling out paperwork and telling the doctor that, no, uh, it actually is not accurate that my mother had her kidney stolen in Egypt. Uh, so yes, she, she does in fact still have them both uh, when the nurse comes in and says, your mom's thirsty. She wants a soda, a Schweppes, dry lemon. Is she kidding me? What the hell kind of parent puts their kids through something like this? The soda gets stuck in the machine, and, and while I'm kicking the crap out of this inanimate object, I start making my own list of all of the things she's missed as a mother. I'm going to walk into that hospital room and tell her all the ways she has screwed up. But the woman sitting there is not the woman I left. She's very small and very scared and very quiet. She sits there hugging her knees, looking like, like she's five years old. And then, in this tiny voice, she says, your mom is a joke, Kate. Your mom is a clown. All of my anger is gone. And she's my mom. And right now, my mom really needs a parent. But all she's got is me. I walk over to the bed. I sit down next to her. I look at her and I say, I will always make sure you're okay. Then I hand her the can of Schreps dry lemon and I tell her to drink. She must be thirsty. 
live. The Dig Deep Special. Do not go anywhere. We'll be right back after the break. Back to Snap Judgment Live. Get ready to dig deep. Enjoy the show. Already in progress. I keep getting phone calls, letters, emails. Are you bringing him with you? Well, it is my delighted honor to welcome Mr. Joshua Walters. Natalie, my love, a French doctor with a specific interest in autism, children with autism, takes her kids who have autism to the Trader Joe's on a field trip. It's an education for the community. It's an education for the kids. It's like a psych ward on a field trip. Natalie and I go on our own walks through Tilden Park. There, a little dog sniffed her hand, a little greyhound, and it ran up the trail, and it humped another dog who's bigger and shaggier. And then the owners of the greyhound dog came up. No, no, Isaac, please, please, get, get down off that dog. Please, get down off that dog. No, no. And we struck up a conversation with them. Because nothing brings up conversation like a gay dog. <laughs> we looked at these two people. The woman was a PhD in neuroscience studying autism in mice. Natalie, a PhD, studying autism in children. This woman's husband was a, some sort of computer scientist with Asperger's, a mild form of autism, and I am a performing artist diagnosed with bipolar disorder, on bipolar medications, and we look at each other, and there's a circle there. (laughs) Something's going on, am I right? The two PhDs start to talk, and I feel like me and this other guy are filming a PBS special. The two PhDs start to talk, and Natalie asks the first question. What do you think the increased autism is? Well, it could be one of two things. It could be genetic, or it could be environmental causes. 
Like, you know, when we have a pregnant mouse and um, we feed it alcohol and then we poke toothpicks in it and then we put it in a box and then we shake the box, we shake up the box and then we take it out of the box and we slap it around, we give it a good slap, you know, just a good slap, a good slap and then the babies are born, the babies are born from this mice and they're a little smaller and pinker and we conclude that the babies of this mice have autism. Oh, no, 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 no. I work with children with real autism, okay? And these children, they need love. And you know what I think? That the real cause of autism is increase. It's the chemical culture that we live in. The chemicals in our pharmaceuticals. You take the pharmaceuticals for schizophrenia or the bipolar or the, the, the depression or the anxiety or whatever you have. And then your kids are over-chemicalized. Your kids may have a disability like autism because you take these drugs. Being with Natalie is an education. One time she was late. Not the usual 45 minutes late, French version. But she was late like we could be parents. I took her by the arm. And we walked the four blocks down the El Cerrito streets to the pharmacy, the CVS pharmacy. And we walked in. And there, the cashier was there. And I said, excuse me, sir, uh, do you have um, a pregnancy test? And she, shh, 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 she said, shh. She was embarrassed. She, she ran ahead. She ran ahead. And we got to the aisle and we got the pregnancy test and we were about to check out. She went to the frozen food section and she got a pint of strawberry Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And I said, why not? Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. And we were checking out and I realized that she was getting a pint of strawberry Haagen-Dazs ice cream because she wanted to check out separately from me. And when I realized that, I snatched the pint of haagen ice cream, took it with the pregnancy test, I put cash on the counter, he wraps it up in a CVS membership bag, and then I step back, hands in the air, and say, are you going to get that? <laughs> and she picks it up. And we walk the four blocks back to her apartment. And we stop in front of her door, and I say, hey, because she's shaking right now. She's so nervous. I say, hey, can't we just enjoy the anxiety of this moment? And she says, no. And she runs into the house, too nervous for humor at this point. She goes into the bathroom and she gets a, a cup of pee and she puts the pee on the counter and she puts the pregnancy test in and we have to wait for the pregnancy test. It's about a minute. And we're waiting and we're waiting and we're Not pregnant. I'm relieved. She is ecstatic. She makes a sound. It's like a psychotic laugh and a cry. I've never heard a sound like that. She's over on the bed rolling around the sound. And I rub her back. And we have the conversation of, you know, what if she was positive? And she reminds me because of those medications I'm on. That there's a possibility that my child, our child, could be autistic have a disability and I said then we wouldn't have had it right 
And she said, no, I would have had it. And at that moment, I realized that when you have sex with someone, the result could be in making a baby. And I look at her and I think, you know, I don't know if I ever want to have sex with you again. <laughs> But I go back to the CVS pharmacy for some condoms <laughs> and some ice cream. Today, a local girl made good. Please put your hands together for your own Sonia Renee. My mama has sweaty knees. black girl, it is likely that you knew your mama had sweaty knees too. And we knew this because for nearly a decade, we sat between our mama's sweaty knees to have any myriad of atrocities committed to our scalps. <laughs> my mama braided, ponytailed, pulled my hair every single day of the week. And every six weeks, I got a relaxer. <laughs> I can assure you there is nothing relaxing about having eight-year-old black girl hair. <laughs> Actually, I was pretty certain there was nothing that could be worse. See, first there were the commercials, the ones with people who never had faces or hair like mine. And then there was my mother's sheer disdain and short-temperedness every time I sat between her sweaty knees to have my hair pulled, brushed, and snatched back. My mother, five foot, four inches on a good day, had the hands of Hercules. I swear she could rip the steel beams from beneath the very flesh of the Empire State Building. But instead, she used those hands to braid my hair. <laughs> And if I squirmed in the seat while she did it, stop all that moving around. And if I reached to touch my hair, bop, get your fingers out your head. And if I cried, crack, shut it up, child. Stop all that moving around before I pop you in the head with this brush. I know it sounds awfully abusive. <laughs> it was. <laughs> But the truth is, my mother just wanted her daughter to be beautiful. And when she finished, my hair was a work of art. I was an African princess, a black goddess, queen of the pretty girls everywhere until I went to school. 
See, the first thing to die under the heavy weight of my mother's palms were my hair follicles. <laughs> my mother pulled my hair so tightly that by third grade, I had permanent bald spots on the side of my head. Now, not only did I have short hair, but in some places it was non-existent. And every day I got on the school bus to headed to Wool Slayer Elementary School to be reminded of how far from beautiful I truly was. See, there was Tanya Twyman, awful name. Tanya, four years older than me and mean as they made them, I swear she breathed to make my life sad. <laughs> And she always started the school bus ride with a chant that was very quiet at first. Sonia, 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 Sonia bald spots. And the whole bus would join in. Sonia, Sonia bald spots. While I sat in the front and wept closest to the bus driver. They became the soundtrack of my most visceral insecurities, the music of my adolescence. My first date, Sonia, Sonia Ball Spots. The first time I kissed a boy, Sonia, Sonia Ball Spots. The first time I fell in love, Sonia, Sonia Ball Spots. They would be singing just behind my back. I was beginning to believe that there would be no respite from the chasm of hair shame. That is, until the 1990s. <laughs> LL Cool J told me he wanted a girl with extensions in her hair, and I thought, finally! <laughs> and realized that I could add hair to my head, and that's what I did. See, I had never heard of weave until ninth grade when I realized that black girls all over the land were sprouting shoulder-length locks. No one would have to know the shame lurking beneath the piles of possibly human hair on the top of your head. And I, I knew that I had found my panacea, but quickly... My hair heaven turned into a hair hell as I spun in a decade-long cyclone that always lived out the same pattern every year. Get a relaxer, usually leaving painful chemical burns in my scalp. Use glue, add weave, watch my own hair break off like splintered wood as a result of the glue. Get a relaxer and start the process all over again. Until 2001 when I discovered the holy grail of hair solutions, I discovered wigs! <laughs> no, well, actually, it's more like wigs discovered me. See, you could put them on. Up until then, I thought of wigs as like some sort of terrible 1970s relic, something my grandmother would wear, but no, not these wigs. These wigs were beautiful, and these were my ticket to being beautiful. They allowed me to forget about the chemical burns in my mama's sweaty knees. They let me forget that I wasn't beautiful. That is, until I took them off. 
And then like Cinderella, at the end of the ball, I was nine years old and on a bus headed to Woolslayer Elementary. And I promised myself I would never go back there. So I took him off less and less. To walk my dog, I grabbed the wig. To go to the grocery store, I grabbed a wig. I had lovers that knew me for years and never saw me without my wig. And even when I became a performance poet and started telling people how to unapologetically love their bodies, I did it all in my wig. Until one day, let's call it today, I woke up and realized I'd been living in a tiny prison of synthetic hair. <laughs> that the wigs had made me a liar. I was really just a little girl pretending to be a woman who actually loved herself. But some deep knowing in the center of my belly kept asking me, what would it be like if I let myself out of that prison? What would it look like if I told the truth to myself, to my world? I think it would look like this. that school bus and grab nine-year-old Sonia by the hand, walk her off of that bus and into womanhood with me, whispering, you have always been beautiful. special was produced by myself, Mark Bristol, Pat C.D. Miller, Renzo Gorio, Jamie DeWolf, Rita Daniels, and Will Urbina. With special help from Carrie Thompson, 
Eric Newsom and Margaret Lowe Smith. Many thanks to the CPB, PRX, and NPR. <laughs>